Oh, we'll have to take two photos today. Yeah, we should somehow like hide our shirts on one of them to make it look like it's two oh, different no days. One loves Let's just take days. our shirts off for the second one. Hell yeah, shirts versus skits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Secret Movie Clubbers, let's get to it. Secret Movie Club Podcast 71. Today, we are talking about Stranger Than Paradise and the director, Jim Jarmish. We haven't talked Jarmish yet. Who's with us today? Hey, it's Daniel. It's me, Connelly Cruz, the people's champion. Hello, America. I'm on a computer still and without a bed frame. And I'm on the floor. And that's it. There you go. We're going to leave that to your imagination, America. It is wonderful to have everybody here. My name's Craig. I'm founder, programmer, Secret Movie Club. When you listen to this, actually, it is possible that our only event this week will be the Million Dollar Theater Minority Report and War of the Worlds Dark Spielberg double feature, both on 35 millimeter. We actually have tons of events in September, but for a variety of reasons and then a choice I made, because we hope actually October to December is going to be epic, I am going to use a few days this week to get ready for that. So uh, we are doing Fastbender on Wednesday, but when you hear this, that'll be done. But in Marriage of Maria Braun, next Wednesday, you can come see the second of Fastbender's BRD trilogy. He made three movies that loosely got called the BRD trilogy, which was the immediate post-World War II West Germany trilogy, are showing Marriage of Maria Braun this week. Next week, we will be doing, I believe it's Lola, and then the final week, it's Veronica Voss. And then on Thursday, we are doing Wong Kar Wai's 2046 on 35 millimeter. That is actually moving towards sellout. We only have a few tickets left, so you may want to get on that. As always, you can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com or podcast at secretmovieclub.com. Just go to secretmovieclub.com to see everything. We finally are getting all our merchandise in. So if you want to get some Secret Movie Club t-shirts, Secret Movie Club bumper stickers, Secret Movie Club buttons, Secret Movie Club mugs, then uh, we got them if you want them. I'm drinking coffee out of my Secret Movie Club mug. I swapped it immediately. Secret Movie mug. It looks like you're selling out like advertising, but it's just for you. So oh, you mean like I'm plugging a different company? Yeah, it looks like you're plugging, like, you know, you got sponsored by Doritos. I will absolutely, if Doritos wants to sponsor me specifically, <laughs> take money from Doritos. You'll eat Doritos on this show. So uh, this past weekend, we did a double dose of Jim Jarmish on 35, courtesy of Janice. Thank you, guys. We did Stranger Than Paradise and Down By Law, which interestingly, I don't necessarily know that people make this mistake. I made this mistake. I used to think that Stranger Than Paradise was his debut feature. Actually, not so. He made a movie about four years prior called Permanent Vacation, which I've never seen, and I would love to see. I haven't seen it. And Permanent Vacation didn't necessarily launch him, but about four years later, Vim Vendors, of all people, gave him about 50 minutes of 35mm film he didn't use on his movie, and Jarmish was really tight with a lot of the German guys at that time, because Jarmish went to NYU and was a teaching assistant for Nicholas Ray, who did Rebel Without a Cause, Bigger Than Life, In a Lonely Place, and Nicholas Ray was a hero of these new wave German guys, and so Jarmish befriended them, and, you know, in that weird way the universe works, Vim Vendors gives him 50 minutes of 35mm stock, and Jarmish shoots the first part of Stranger Than Paradise. And the most amazing thing to me is he got 30 minutes out of it. So his shooting ratio was almost one to one. It was like one point. So he was basically using first takes 
and maybe occasionally a second take. And from that, he was able, I think, to raise more money, and he shot a second and third part, and that became Stranger Than Paradise, which won the camera door at Cannes and really launched his career. I will just give a quick log line. I'm going to go to Daniel first because Daniel, over the last few years, has been our resident Jarmish big aficionado. And I know everybody loves Jarmish, but Daniel really knows all the movies pretty intimately. That's why the image for this episode is just Daniel. (laughs) (laughs) Finally. Stranger Than Paradise, the story basically is we see Eva at an airport and she's in New York and she crashes at Willie's place, who's a distant relative, but distant enough that there's a little bit of romantic tension, which we need to talk about, but that's sort of underplayed, but I feel like it's there. So she crashes at Willie's. Willie doesn't really appear to do much with his life other than cheat people out of cards with his buddy, Eddie. Eddie comes over and gets sweet on Eva. Eva's Hungarian and she loves Eddie and Willie, but she also lives her own life and does whatever she wants to do. And over the course of the movie, it's sort of a slacker movie where Eva eventually just takes off for Ohio and Eddie and Willie go to get her. And then they all decide to go to Florida. And yet it's a beautiful film and a road trip movie and a lot more happens, even though not a lot happens. Uh, And it's in black and white, gorgeous 35 millimeter black and white shot by Tom DiCio of all people who would go on to do like Living in Oblivion and a lot of uh, movies himself as a director. Well, um, yeah, Ding Dong is not his first movie and I've never seen it. So I really can't help you. (laughs) Stranger Paradise was my first Jim Jarmusch movie back. I went to a community college in Tulsa and I had this one film teacher who was like, we were talking about like things we loved in movies, movies we loved. And he had mentioned this and was like, I've never heard of this director. And he was like, what? And the next day in class, he brought me just a stack of DVDs and was like, please borrow these. I think they're going to be your And he was right. He made a very good call. I think it it rules. I think knowing the stuff like you were talking about, about how it was made makes so much more sense and makes it somehow more effective. I always thought of Stranger Than Paradise as, as a road trip movie, but also like this movie about identity with like this struggle of like in the most like multicultural, maybe the most multicultural city in the world or not, maybe not in the world, but in the United States. These people struggling to find their identity and their multiculturalism within it and also making New York feel very like drab, I think is really interesting. Like it's a very unwelcoming, unpleasant thing, which I think a lot of filmmakers that, especially those that reside in New York, don't really touch on. A lot of them want to like, they heighten sort of the joy of New York, but this, I think Jarmusch has this real interest in like this sort of sincere honesty to what New York can be when you're new, especially. Or poor. Or poor, specifically poor, yeah. It just becomes this great kind of character study that I think I counted that it's um, 67 single shot, basically like 67 little shorts. And there's like zero coverage. There's nothing to cut to. The entire thing rides on performance and script, which is horrifying from a, if you were entering into a production and and that was pitched to you, I'd be terrified because you have to, (laughs) everything has to click for it to work. And I think it does work. This really sets up Jarmusch's, his sort of theme, this concept of like outsider art that becomes kind of his mission statement for his entire career. Kind of this portrait of being uncertain and not really having a straight path when you're young and moving into something brand new. And as a calling card for a new director is is a pretty big achievement, I think. I think all of the accolades make sense. As a low-budget thing, I think it's like an insane accomplishment for what he pulls off. The style works so well that when I first saw the movie, I was aware, oh, it's all just one shot, one scene. I got that. But what you said when you're a filmmaker is... 
the danger and the daring and how wrong that could have gone, you never think about pace. I mean, once you accept that that's the style of the movie, every shot just seems done really, really well. You never say, oh, they needed to punch into a close up here or, oh, I wish they had done that or, oh, I can. It's amazing how well it works, I think. It falls under the tight 90 aesthetic, which there's nothing I would have cut in terms of everything feels like it belongs for a character piece and still comes in under 90. And even if pace wasn't a thought process in the creation, I think it flows marvelously by chance or just by like a skill of, of an internal knowledge of what's going on with this thing. Good picture. And it's not my necessary favorite Jim Jarmusch film, but I respect what it is, you know. Jim Jarmusch, for me, is like one of those new wave American filmmakers. Jarmusch is almost like the yeah, American version of uh, Jean-Luc Godard. And half the stuff he shot is so French new wave. You know, a lot of handheld stuff, a lot of cool like camera movements, you know, like smooth. And for Stranger in Paradise, it's a very unique film with a budget of so low. And to manage to pull off what he got, it's incredible. And I really admire John Lurie. I think he's pretty cool. One of his uh, regulars. He, he uses a lot of people throughout his whole movies, mainly Tom Waits, who's been every single Jim Jarmusch movie that I could think of. As everyone knows, I came up watching movies in the 90s. That was my teenage years, and, and then my, my early, early 20s were in the 90s. And so I would go to the video store way back when, and, and I'd get all these things. And by the time that I got to Jarmish, I think the thing that I really remember when I saw Stranger Than Paradise, it's funny how much of great cinema is about moods, like a mood it puts you in. It's always about the filmmaking and the story and, and all that great stuff. But I remember watching Jarmish and being put into just this mood. Watching it again, I remembered how funny it was, but it's very, very funny. And I had forgotten the whole sequence where they go to Akron, Ohio, and there's Eva's Aunt Lottie, and she seems to just complain about everything. But she seems like a very, very real character. I, when you make a movie, I think sometimes the height of artistry is when you have limitations, but you somehow go, okay, these are the limitations I have, and here's the artistic fix or solution. And then the artistic fix or solution transcends the limitation and becomes a new thing. It, it, it actually works for what you were doing. I mean, some of those shots are so well choreographed. I would actually argue, and I don't mean this as a knock on Mr. Jarmish later in his career, but I think some of the shots in Stranger Than Paradise and Down by Law are some of the best shots he ever did in his entire career. And there's this shot where they all get in the car to go to Florida and Aunt Lottie is really angry. And I don't know if you remember that shot, but they all pile in the car in the background and they leave. And then Aunt Lottie comes into the foreground and then she's silhouetted because it's dark. And then she just goes into her house alone and he hangs on that shot. I was in my head. I, I thought to myself, this is a John Ford shot. I mean, this is a beautifully staged shot with light and dark and it's telling a story. So when I was watching Stranger Than Paradise again, I was just reminded of his humor and actually how stylistically, I think, poetic Stranger and Down by Law are in a way that I think some of his later movies, not all of them, but some of his later movies feel a little prosaic to me in comparison with these. Now, not all of them. I think Dead Man's very poetic. And actually, I know we'll probably talk about it, but Daniel turned me on to Patterson. And I think now my two favorite Jarmishes are Down by Law and Patterson. And Patterson is a fairly recent Jarmish. And I thought it was incredible. I've seen very limited Jarmish. I did get to see Strangers in Paris at our screening previously i'd only seen the dead don't die which we can talk about later and broken flowers which i don't remember and i watched for bill murray i liked stranger than paradise but so far 
I have found Jarmish's stuff to be slight for my taste. I think that's kind of the point, that kind of minimalist style. And I think I don't necessarily totally dig it, but I get it. I always think it's weird when people talk about something they don't necessarily love and say, like, I don't get it, which I think is maybe kind of lazy uh, way to look at things. Because I think you can always sort of analyze why something isn't working for you totally or maybe is working for other people. And I think his stuff is not my taste, but... I do think out of the ones I've seen, Stranger Than Paradise sort of accomplished what it was going for the best. And hearing you guys talk about it made me appreciate it more thinking back on it. But it also does, it reminds me of like of college shorts I made. It's very approachable <laughs> in that way. I think this is one of those things where if I had seen it when I was 16 or 17, the same age that I was seeing Kevin Smith. I think I would have liked it in a very similar way. But yeah, I thought it was solid. And I want to watch more of his stuff. The three that look the most interesting to me are Dead Man, Ghost Dog, and the Vampire one. Yeah, only Lovers Left Alive. And then Down by Law. I guess, weirdly, those are the ones that have more genre stuff in them. His career has been fascinating because Jarmish from the very beginning, I was telling people this at the double, no less than Steven Soderbergh said how much he admires Jarmish because Jarmish owns the copyright, I think, to every movie he's ever done. And Jarmish made a decision really early on. I was reading a book of interviews and prep for the double. And he was saying that after Stranger Than Paradise, he got approached by Hollywood to do, you know, just like Hollywood does with a lot of exciting filmmakers. He got approached to direct movies and he he said it was funny because they sent him scripts and he wrote his own stuff. But out of curiosity, he would read the scripts they were sending him. And he, he said they were sending him a lot of Porky's sequels like they wanted him to make. They wanted him to make oh, like yeah. a sex comedy. He just decided that he didn't want to jump on the Hollywood train. He wanted to build up slowly and incrementally and retain creative control. But later on, Connor, what's interesting is he did really get in. I mean, and actually with Down by Law, like you said, his movies have always alternated between kind of contemporary Jarmish slice of life with genre experiments. And you can see that most recently, where I think his most recent pictures are Patterson and then The Dead Don't Die. Patterson plays like Stranger Than Paradise, but in a different way. And then The Dead Don't Die is a zombie picture. So his career has been interesting. Anything else you want to say about Stranger Than Paradise? John Laurie's kind of a in the movie. It's a very beautifully shot film, and I, and I just love everything about it. It's just not my favorite Jarmish picture. Well, lastly, I would like to just point out... That the guy who plays Eddie in Stranger Than Paradise also plays one of the Goombas in the Super Mario Brothers movie. And he's in uh, Do the Right Thing. I think he's in Ferris Bueller, too. Yeah, he's one of the guys who steals Cameron's dad's car. (laughs) (laughs) My my favorite drama is what I consider to be the best film he's ever done. And you can suck it, Daniel, is Night on Earth. Night on Earth. It's my favorite Jarmish picture. When has Daniel ever spoken against Night on Earth? Well, still, man, let me finish, Craig. Thank you. Okay. Night on Earth is like one of my all-time favorite pictures. I've seen it so many times. All the segments about cabbies in different parts of the world just having a conversation with their, you know, the fair. My, my, my favorites are the Roberto Benini part where he just like goes all along with improvisation. And he just sings and drives like a crazy madman, which is the best segment in the whole film. 
there's Renona Ryder and Jenna Rollins that have a great conversation, you know, about Hollywood life and trying to get in big, you know, but she wants to be a mechanic. She doesn't want to deal with that Hollywood stuff. And there's a French one, which was kind of good, but a little weird. And there's the last segment is somewhere, a villain where it gets some more serious and personal. That is the second best segment in the whole film. I just, I just worship that movie. It's so damn good. It's just perfect. Like, it's something I've never seen personally done. Like, different people in different parts of the world at, like, the same time during the night. You know, one in Los Angeles, one in New York, one in Paris, Italy, and Finland. It's just about people just talking and getting into their personal lives. And, and that's what I love about that movie. It's a comedy, it's sad, it's something to think of, especially some of the pickup shots of the city, the landscape, everything, like, especially for Los Angeles, where you could clearly tell that's totally L.A. in the 90s. It's such a beautiful film, and I, I just, I want to screen it soon, because I, I think that should have been what should have been played at the double Night on Earth and probably Mystery Train. This is my second favorite Jim Jarmusch picture. Well, and that's interesting because those were shot back to back. Just to add a little background at this point for anybody interested. So Jarmish graduated from NYU and the NYU directors, this doesn't hold as much anymore because since then, people like Brett Ratner have graduated NYU and then people like James Gray graduated USC. So James Gray is the epitome of art house filmmaking and Brett Ratner is the epitome of being outed by the Me Too movement as a serial abuser and a huge producer and the rush hour guy. So the NYU-USC thing doesn't quite hold as much as it used to. But when I went to USC, and I, I'll out myself as somebody who went to USC, and that was because of financial aid statements. I think I've told this story a lot, but I actually wanted to go to NYU, but then I got my financial aid statements and I didn't want to go $200,000 into debt. So I, I went to USC. Back then, Martin Scorsese, Joel Cohen, Spike Lee, Jim Jarmish, Ang Lee. I mean, just this murderer's row of amazing directors came out of NYU. Charmish was one of them. And then USC was was known, you know, USC was John Milius and George Lucas and Robert Zemeckis and amazing technicians like Gary Rydstrom and Ben Burt and, you know, on and on and on. And then, of course, AFI was David Lynch and Terrence Malick. And, you know, UCLA was Francis Ford Coppola and Alexander Payne and, you know, on and on and on. But the thing about Charmish, I always view him as being part of that 80s new wave. American New Wave, which I would define as Jarmish, Spike Lee, the Cohen brothers, and John Sayles. And that's very loose, but they all kind of launched and got big right around the same time. And Jarmish never really had a desire to direct anything Hollywood. He, he was He's always been comfortable directing low-budget, relatively low-budget pictures with actors that he likes working with, but he takes his genres to the max and he experiments, but he has retained complete creative control of everything and has been openly vocal that that's the way he wants to work. Obviously, Jarmish has made actually a lot of movies. For somebody who decided to, you know, go the hard way his whole life, he's surprisingly come out with a movie, I think, every two years or so, two or three years. Yeah, I think he's got like 13 features plus documentaries. I've seen Night on Earth one more time than Edwin, which is great to talk about it just to have like that little edge. <laughs> but I think what Edwin says is really interesting because I think that Jarmusch has like these obsessions and all of his work are, are character studies, but it's not always in the most 
obvious. Some of them are like very surface level and intentional. It's, it's about the way people want to be identified and portray themselves. They seem very interested in not being known internally, but more with like the vibe they represent. They're sort of like the Japanese couple in Mystery Train. Like their identity is, is about this Western culture they're obsessed with. And so they, they try to live and breathe within it. And the way that they dress and the way that they act is sort of defined by it. So there's like the surface level to them and a lot of his characters that are trying to exist as this one thing, but you can sort of see through their eyes and internally it's a different ballgame. And it's such an interesting thing from a filmmaking perspective because it does put this weird plexiglass between you. You, you want to relate because you see that in yourself too, I think. But it also is frustrating because you know that you're maybe not seeing the real version of these people. I think I've come to the conclusion that my favorite Jarmish movie is now Patterson. And it's become like a comfort movie the last four or five years whenever it came out. Patterson was like this, re not a return because I don't think he's ever had a, like a, just an absolute dud. But it felt very much like The Stranger in Paradise, just sort of let the scenes talk. There's no stakes. There's not a plot to sort of drive things forward. It's just sort of you're spending time with this character and you grow to love or maybe hate if you don't like the movie. But it's all about the time you spend with people. And that seems to be his through line through everything. Everything's about spending time with people. Even in something like Dead Man, where it's, you know, someone in a negative circumstance, but the time you spend with them, you get to dictate if they're on the right or if they're on the wrong. And I saw it with Connor, but the only one that sort of has divvied from that is The Dead Don't Die. And it's this kind of odd thing where it feels like such a, not a departure, because I see the things that clearly make it his, but I just felt I couldn't find a connection. There's great little moments and performances, but it feels very disconnected. And I think that is intentional, but within that intention, it kind of lost me. I will couch my thing in the middle of your love fest, Daniel, to soften the blow, because the only other Jewish movie I remember is The Dead Don't Die, which I did not care for. And is known as being one of his weaker efforts. I think almost everybody universally thought The Dead Don't Die didn't work. There's like a minute of it that's funny. And then there's a lot of it that's very cringy. And there's like a character at one point, like Caleb Landry Jones isn't a horrible looking man, but he's a unique looking man for like a movie's sake. And I think Selena Gomez, he says something about a movie and she's like, you know a lot about movies and like an attracted way. And my skeleton wanted to jump out of my skin because I don't know why <laughs> that kind of stuff always. I think the big thing I noticed is that even if Stranger Than Paradise wasn't necessarily my thing, Stranger Than Paradise felt like a young man's movie and Dead Don't Die felt like an old man's movie. And I think there's something to say about, I need to see the movies that are in between there, but I think you can definitely tell his age from the Dead Don't Die. It feels disconnected from whatever sort of cool that he was sort of tapped into in Stranger Than Paradise. And it's a weird one to go for you to yeah. just seen. It's like the <laughs> most bizarre. Yeah, because like Only Lovers Left Alive and Patterson are like, I think two of his best because he seems so confident as a director to just let... And then The Dead Don't Die feels like a different... It's like a... And I think it's supposed to be Winky. Yeah, I should have watched one of those instead of <laughs> Candyman yesterday, but oh well. I don't know that this is exactly correct, Connor, but it would be like judging Martin Scorsese after only seeing Bringing Out the Dead. Oh, well, it's, my broader judgment of Jim Jarmusch is I don't have any ill will towards him. My temperament has not been mad sometimes i feel like i talk about somebody i don't like and it's like i'm mad about it oh no i get it i get what you're saying with jarmish it's it's more just like i just haven't yet gotten that hook you know 
where I've totally bought into it. But you may never get it. I might not. I imagine I'm not going to like him to the degree that Daniel likes him. I am very interested in seeing those like four movies or so I listed earlier. But he seems, I mean this in a positive way, but unassuming in a sense that I can't hate him. He's just chilling. He seems like he doesn't care, but not in a pretentious way. He's just like, oh, I'm, I'm just making this, man. Like, don't worry about it. Yeah, I did Don't Die. I did not like it, but I also, it's hard for me to have a ton of ill will towards it. It's just there. It's worth it for that shot of Adam Driver driving the tiny car. That moment is singularly hilarious. And also, I think the shot when it cuts to Tilda Swinton and she's like on five computers at once, like, like hacking everything. There's a couple shots in that movie that made me laugh. And then there's a lot of really weird stuff with Steve Buscemi. And- I've never revisited it, but I'm wondering if that surface level, like, it seems to be about the dangers of, like, technology and, like, zombifying us type of thing. If it just rings, it's like, an, like you were saying, an old man's movie, but you're like, okay. My favorites, I already said them, but my favorites are Patterson and Down by Law. And I would say Dead Man actually is pretty high up there for me too, Connor. I think you may enjoy Dead Man. It's a Western, and it really is a Western. Bob Mitchum is in it. Yeah, Dead Man, Down by Law, and Ghost Dog are all on the Criterion channel, so I might check those out. I think Only Lovers Left Alive is on Prime. So, And if you're having like a not-so-great day, try Patterson, because it's like warm soup when you're sick. Well, Patterson might be his masterpiece. I think so. And I love Down by Law because it both is a great character study and a great story, and I do find that... That I love story. Now, I love character-driven pieces as well, but Down by Law is really actually traditionally pretty classical, and you, you meet these three guys, they all get put in the same prison cell together, they befriend each other, they break out of prison, and then there's some genuine stakes about are they going to get caught again or not. They're in the bayou, which I thought was a great location and atmosphere. They're escaping through the swamp. It's a beautiful film, and it feels very jarmishy and poetic, and yet it's very hilarious and off-kilter. And then Patterson, to me, almost feels like the thing he had been striving for his whole life, which was making a movie where there are no artificial stakes or no artificial things that don't happen to most people in their lives. It's literally just following a couple across a short amount of their life. And something does happen. I don't want to give it away. Something does happen that that is kind of, there are stakes in the movie a little bit, but nevertheless, there's just a joy and a beauty of hanging out with this couple that genuinely loves each other. And you just hang out with them for an hour and a half. And then the movie's done and you're like, that was just beautiful. And it felt like maybe this Zen ideal he had been striving for his whole life. I admire the heck out of Jarmish, and there are Jarmish movies I like, and I often go to see the new Jarmish, and he is a, an American voice and an auteur. My worry is I actually found, and I, I respect his decision, but I think his decision not to ever try to make something bigger or not to try to work with other people. I found this with people like Woody Allen and other filmmakers. There are certain filmmakers who, and they're honest about it, but they say, I just, I'm not going to collaborate. You give me a bag of money and I make my movie. And the movie that I turn in is the movie you get. And they, they all say a version of this. And the way that I hear that is I'm so sensitive to people maybe suggesting I could branch out or improve myself, or I'm so sensitive to criticism, or I'm so sensitive to a team pushing me that I've decided I don't even want to engage with that. And I respect that. And I think I say that because I worry about that. But I found in my life that 
really great work, like the work that sort of feels like the universe is directing out of its mind, are people who put together a team of super creative people, super talented people, and were willing to be pushed, willing to have some conflict, and willing to, to be out of their comfort zone. And so, again, this is not a criticism of Mr. Jarmish because he's crafted a career that anyone would envy. I just don't know. I don't know that that would necessarily be for me. I always feel like you have to somehow feather the balance of make sure you don't lose the store because you, you know, somebody is going to totally rip the movie from you. You never do that. I mean, I do agree with what David Lynch said, always retain final cut. But if you can, if you can, but I would also say, I also hope I never get to the point where I don't want to hear people criticize me and I don't want people and people push me and, and people tell me, try this or do that or get out of your comfort zone. And I don't know how that applies, but that's my thoughts. So I agree with what you're saying, though. I think it's there's almost like a whole podcast about the concept of as an artist is sort of staying in a comfort zone or, or retaining your collaboration with people that you're comfortable with because they inspire you to do good work. It's not I don't think it's an, always a negative, but you do wonder sort of what other collaborations could bring up. This is also that same thing when like people kind of deviate away and then they come back together for a project that makes that really exciting. They're like, oh, so-and-so's back with so-and-so that I think's sort of interesting as well. Yeah, I don't know. I've never had, I think he has such a, for me, a streak of things that I like or love in most cases that I've never, I guess, thought about it that way. But I also see that there could be some excitement and maybe it will be with the next thing. This just in from Deadline. He's directing Captain America 4. <laughs> what? Well, you know, the Coens, you know, if you actually look at the other three that graduated NYU roughly the same time, the Coens and Spike Lee have definitely had some misfires. Interestingly, though, the Coens and Spike Lee have swung for the fences in a way and taken some chances. And it's not to say that Jarmish hasn't taken chances. He has. He, you know, he, he's always doing. I mean, I haven't seen The Limits of Control, but I heard The Limits of Control is a really weird picture, too, which was all about his hatred of Bush and Cheney. I think that Jarmish absolutely takes chances. And I wish I could formulate the thought better other than to say that the Coens and Lee, for whatever drives them, took on bigger budgets and dealt with bigger personalities like Scott Rudin and stuff like that and still tried to make a Coen Brothers picture or a Spike Lee picture. But they sort of like got into the ring <laughs> and took their punches. And I'm, again, I'm not saying that Jarmish didn't do that. I don't know everything he has to do to, to make his money. And I don't know how I would do either. I think I often am a wilting lily when there's a real strong personality yelling at me. But then sometimes I also have the ability to tell people to F off and get out of my face. So I don't know. Well, the stuff, it's kind of limited in range, but I think about like with the Coens for Inside Lewin Davis, Roger Deakins was booked, their usual DP. And so Bruno Del Bonnell shot it instead. And when that was announced, I was really bummed. I was like, oh, that's their guy. And then Bruno's work is like incredible and so fitting of that aesthetic and that story that now I can't imagine it without his involvement. It sort of made it this unique thing. So I do wonder that. I mean, it, that's a super limited thought pattern but i think inside lewin davis is one of the best movies ever made pop culture final thoughts edwin still alive and los feliz three hasn't worn me out yet i got to meet bernard rose the director of Candyman. it was so nice that he signed my Candyman blu-ray i was gonna do the dvd but chose the blu-ray which is the first and uh next you know uh next day i find out pan also was gonna be there and victor told me Hey, you're gonna come see uh, Pan Ozone? And I was like, I wanted to sleep in because I was a closing shift that night. So I ended up waking up, going. And that same day, I had to close a shift at 5. So the movie was at 1.30 and I got there early. And I met Pan Oswald and I told him, you're 
a great movie buff and you signed my copy of American Movie and I left the theater, went back home, chilled for a little bit, went back to the theater, closed, house suit, vinyl soundtrack, amazing, I'm tired, so yeah. I wanted to say f Greg Abbott. And everybody out in California, you should vote in the recall election. And I'll just say, vote no. And you can watch me play video games at twitch.tv slash Connor Cruz. Greg Abbott is the uh, governor of Texas. So what is it about him that's raising your, your ire? He's just making a series of very bad decisions when it comes to everything he's doing. Public health. <laughs> yeah, public health decisions. He sucks thumbs down as connor was referencing too because i like when we do this because it gives people a little historical marker about what's actually happening in the real world too so as we're recording this we're about two weeks from a recall election in california the second in only 25 years the previous one unseated gray davis he actually did get voted out and then arnold schwarzenegger became governor this one feels different though gavin newsom is our governor right now it's another recall and if you vote no you're saying keep newsom in basically i'm rejecting this recall. And then if you vote yes, you're saying, I want Newsom out, and then here's the person I'm going to vote for. I have my ballot. Actually, I'm looking at it right now. I will also be voting no. I'm, I'm voting to keep Newsom in. I think this recall is frivolous. I'm very uncomfortable, and I'd say for anybody, regardless of your political stripes, Gavin Newsom was democratically elected. He was democratically elected by the state. The fact that we have a weird law in place that one million signatures out of a state of 30 or 40 million people can instigate an overturn of a Democratic election, whether that's Republican or Democrat, by the way, sometimes you got to get over your party and just think about Democratic principles, whether it goes with you or it doesn't go with you. I think this recall thing can become frivolous and a pain, and we're spending billions of dollars on it. And Newsom was democratically elected. You don't like Newsom, vote him out the next time he's up for re-election. I'm voting no on the recall, too. I just, the Democratic principles of democracy have got to hold. I'm sick of this loophole BS. And if he gets recalled, it's Probably, I think most people think it's going to be Larry Elder who gets elected in his place and his policies on the pandemic are going to extend the pandemic and costs a lot of Californians their lives. Well, and, you know, think for yourself. You're hearing our thoughts, guys. Research it on your own, but definitely vote. Uh, we did a whole thing months ago about the election. Just this is a democracy still. So vote, please. I watched The Conformist with with you, Craig, and it was Awesome. Great movie. Then I watched this, the Sandra Bullock starring movie The Net from 1995. I love movies about the internet before anyone understood what the internet does. It's incredible. And finally, I went and saw The Green Knight again, and I'm, I'm pretty obsessed with it. It's really good. Yeah, Daniel and I watched with my friend Joe Ballerini. We watched The Conformist on 35 because I wasn't able to, for a host of reasons, see it when we did it uh, at the Million Dollar. And when I was watching it, many of you know this, it's uh, 1971, Bernardo Bertolucci, Vittorio Storaro, the first collaboration, and they would become a very famous teaming, Bertolucci, Storaro. And The Conformist, in many ways, influenced all of 1970s American filmmaking. I can't watch Godfather 2 without thinking about The Conformist because it feels like Coppola was hugely influenced by The Conformist when he made Godfather 2. And it's funny, there was a theme going on. Connor was saying earlier about old men movies, and we've talked about this, or when older people movies versus young people movies. And Storaro and Bertolucci were still very young when they made The Conformist. I think they were early 30s at most when they made it. And there's nothing you can do about aging. <laughs> you know, if you're lucky, you get to age. You know, if you're lucky, you get to be an old person. And I don't want to fight it. I, you know, I'm 44. I'm, that's where I'm at. The thing that I always think about, though, is how can you 
you know, weave in the wisdom and experience, which is the beautiful thing you gain with age, without losing being tapped into the moment and experimentation and a kind of vibrancy and energy and connectedness to the flow of the river in order to make relevant movies. That's probably an eternal struggle, always will be an eternal struggle. But watching The Conformist, I just, it was so exciting. It was so exciting to watch because it's nonlinear editing. The whole movie is him driving out to this assassination. And then you're cutting back and finding out the story as he's driving out to the assassination. You're finding out about his character. You're watching this incredible cinematography, incredible editing. There's an eroticism to the picture. I just watched it. I was like, oh. It's like watching Goodfellas. I was just like, oh, oh, man, I want to make movies like this. Obviously, you know, I, I don't have Bertolucci's sensibility, but whatever that vitality is, that vitality that makes great pictures, the conformist, I was just like, ah. Oh. So I'm going to end there with guttural grunts. Uh, as always, this episode was edited by Connor Lloyd Cruz. Um, next week, we are going to be talking. We're going to be doing another Elements of Cinema. This time, we're talking about one of the most important elements, and yet one of the least understood and one of the intentionally most obscured, and that's producing. So I hope you'll listen to it. It's hugely important to how a movie comes out. Uh, maybe the most important thing to how a movie comes out, even more important than the director and, or the writer. I'll talk about that you know, next episode. As always, you can find out everything we do on secretmovieclub.com. You can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com or podcast at secretmovieclub.com. This weekend, like we said, we're going to be doing a double at Dark Spielberg at the Million Dollar Theater, Minority Report, War of the Worlds. And then uh, next Wednesday, we're doing Lola, Fassbender's Lola. We'd love to have you. All those titles I just said are 35 millimeter. Much more to come. Thank you, everybody. Have a great week. I'm working, Craig. You didn't meet Pat Oswald yesterday, Craig, and Bernard Rose, director of Candyman. That's, ah! that's incredible. Yeah. And he signed my Candyman Blu-ray, and Pat Oswald signed my American movie DVD. So, ha! You're just jealous, Craig. You're just jealous. I admire you. I'm proud of you. I look up to you. That's right, because I'm the chosen one, not you, man. That's true. The apprentice has become the master, the master of the apprentice. Exactly, the master of the universe, right, man. Yeah, because I'm the master of the why, universe. Why did he sign an American movie? Because that's one of my personal favorite movies, and Patton Oswalt was a big cinephile buff, and what, might oh, as well God. have him sign one of my personal favorites. I thought there was, was like so a, nice him. AKA Patton Oswalt was like, sure, fine. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man. I, I have to get out of here. At least he signed it. <laughs>